house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. was fast. You have your own place? Yes. You have indoor plumbing? Yes, I have indoor plumbing, I have electricity, and I have a name. No names. It was easy. You're different than the others, Mike. I feel like, oh, maybe I could love you. But the last seduction... What type of list are we trying to make? Cheating husband list. ...was murder. This guy in New York. Ten million payoff to the widow if he dies of an unnatural death. She's willing to give us a third. You're talking about murder. You, me... Three million bucks. The only loser in the whole deal is a wife-beating old bastard. You're crazy. I'm out of here, Mike. You have a way of making a woman feel like a one-way train ticket. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that will cut our bangs. We swear to God we will. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my deep, dark secret from Western New York, Chris File. Hello, Chris. <laughs> it's kind of a switch. That's kind of a switcheroo between the two of us. I am, of course, the deep, dark secret from Western New York. You, oh, you're someone's deep, dark secret. <laughs> Who knows? We have yeah. a little bit of a, a different format for yes. this episode because we, we have... Something uh, fun this episode. We have Karina Longworth on as a guest. Yes. However, Karina, very busy woman, uh, getting, uh, you must remember this, uh, erotic 90s out there to everyone. So we only had her for an hour. So we kind of truncated some of the things. Right. But uh, we'll get into our conversation with Karina soon enough. But Other podcasts do this. Other podcasts drop in their interviews with their with their guests in the middle of an episode. So certainly, we're just... Certainly. We are, we are trying out that format for a week. We will be back to our regular format next week. Uh, but we were so excited to be able to talk to Karina about this movie in particular. This movie, uh, you know, f- certainly fits within her erotic 90s uh, umbrella. We're so excited for... It that podcast. So, yeah, we figured we would uh we would switch it up a little bit. So, we're going to intro the movie ourselves and then we'll get into Karina and then we'll uh be back here for a little bit of wrap up at the end. Um we've wanted to do the last seduction for quite a while, Chris. This mm-hmm. was on our uh listener's choice when we did our Focus Features miniseries because Correct. this movie of course predates Focus Features, but it was an October Films release. And an October Films uh, plaintiff <laughs> at one point. Academy plaintiff. Yeah, that's the big the big sort of Oscar story around the last seduction is it was ended up it ended up being ruled ineligible by the Academy because it had aired in July of 1994 on HBO because the prospects for theatrical distribution were so bleak, and then later in the year. It did get a theatrical release. It became something of a critical cause celeb. And part of that was the lead performance of Linda Fiorentino, who a lot of critics got behind as a Best Actress contender. A lot of it was the fact that John Dahl had two movies out in 1992 that critics were really loving, this and Red Rock West. And so, understandably, <laughs> October Films 
wanted to uh, make an Oscar run with this, and there was the Academy was like, no, no, you broke our uh, letter of the law. You were so on we'll... late night HBO. I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. You know, if only Taxi Cab Confessions had broken the seal <laughs> on that and tried to get a theatrical release, we could have prepared for... Uh, the last seduction to get uh, it's due for what I think is a pretty tremendous performance. Yes, because um, all of this conversation, of course, at the time was centered around the performance by Linda Fiorentino, uh, which is uh, the movie itself is a callback to a lot of uh, noir tropes, but yes. in you know modern more overt uh, sexual circumstances though okay this is something we don't get into the conversation that i'd be curious on your perspective of for this movie to have been like late night hbo yes it's kind of leaning into the sexuality of this movie which like this is a you know there's strong sexual content rated r for strong sexual content right um but i i it feels like a stretch to me to try to put it in a porny Box, oh yes you i know like yeah even so within it's, its genre of 1990s erotic thrillers it's way less graphic than a lot of other of its contemporaries it has of course we we do get into the chain link fence scene yes which i think my int- my first introduction to the last seduction was them describing that scene in an episode of sex in the city Oh, really? I don't remember. Yes. Well, you've just recently watched All of Sex in the City. Yes. But I do remember them be- describing that, and I'm like, what's this movie? That's funny. Um, I imagine Samantha that- was very much in favor of uh, of the lead character in The Last Seduction. If I remember uh, specifically, I think it's Miranda that's talking about this Sure. Scene. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's also like they're kind of rescuing this legitimate movie from being, you know, labeled uh, l- late night, uh, yeah. late night Skinamax. Right. Um, and, you know, as far as like the tropes of, you know, noir and what it's doing and like be- putting it in a more sexually frank context, even yeah. though it's the exact behaviors that people would have in those type of movies. Um I, there, there's something about we'll call her Wendy Croy that right. is such a subversive, prototypical, amazing Amy. Yes, uh, that I think it, because of some of her bad behavior, right? It's hard to call her even an antihero the way she weaponizes racism, transphobia. Yes, uh, I, but we do have fun, I think, in the way that she manipulates these men especially yes. the peter berg character yes um through his toxic masculinity yes um i think that's right i think there is even you look at some of these sort of movies that were made decades ago and you think oh now from my modern perspective we you know we stand this character or whatever and but even like i imagine making this movie like the intent of this movie is that she is doing all of these awful things, but you also do get, are supposed to be getting a thrill out of watching her get away with all of this. And um, Fiorentino's performance is so captivating and aggressive and confident. And, you know, it, 
Uh, you mentioned Taxicab Confessions. I was I was thinking, who would have been <laughs> the more interesting character to tell the story of this movie from the back of a cab? Either the Fiorentino character, which would be you know very uh, confident and and cagey and and um, or the Peter Berg character, dumbfounded as all fuck, being like, you would not believe. <laughs> What has happened to me over the course of the last several weeks? And the cab driver being hey, like, man, wow. How's your night going? Well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a very good movie. It's a very interesting movie. You can see why critics would have gotten behind it, especially like critics do love um, a lost cause, too. So I imagine once it became true what? or once it became known that that the Academy was – had this technicality where they weren't going to allow it to be eligible i imagine even more so critics being like that's bullshit this movie was great this performance was great um she did end up in other awards conversation which we got into a little bit with karina but i want to talk about maybe a little bit more um she was nominated for the bafta the weird weird bafta lineup that year (laughs) that included um Two Oscar nominees who were nominated in two different categories. Uh, Uma Thurman, who was a supporting actress nominee at the Oscars, was not was nominated as a lead at the BAFTAs. Also, uh, uh, Susan Sarandon was an Oscar nominee. She ends up winning the BAFTA for the client, which is fun. I'm just going to say that that outcome is very fun. Is fun. And then wait, who was the fourth? I don't have it right here. I'm pulling up my spreadsheet. Oh, yes, it's Irene Jacob for Three Colors Red. Right, yes, yes. So only four nominees that year. Uh, so a very eclectic uh, quartet, not not a Jessica Lange in Blue Sky to be seen, not a not a Jodie Foster in Nell. And we celebrate them for that because yeah. uh, we all know how I feel about that Jessica Lange performance. Um, yes, very much so. And Fiorentino then goes on to win the Independent Spirit Award, which feels very, very much like what the Independent Spirit Awards were doing back in the 1990s, especially. She beats out Jennifer Jason Lee in Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle, Chen Lin Wu, who was in uh, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, Luna Lauren Velez, who was in I Like It Like That. She's best known for people if you watch Dexter or perhaps Oz. Uh, Lauren Velez in both of those. And then Karen Silas in a movie called What Happened Was that I've never heard of before. Um, the Tom Noonan film, I believe. There we go. Okay. Um, so Fiorentino comes out on top there. She also wins the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Actress. So she was definitely in a famously wacky year for Best Actress, which we've talked about a lot. Sort of um, um, in a year dominated by Pulp Fiction and at least in the cultural conversation, but then there's also Forrest Gump. That's the big Oscar winner. Right. And so the best actress nominees were all very much like they were, they were finding them in odd corners. Jessica Lang, they found at a, on a shelf at, in Orion's <laughs> warehouse and Miranda Richardson and Tom and Viv. Miranda Richardson was kind of hot at the moment. She was sort of the hot British yeah. uh, import at that moment. Winona Ryder for little women, which I think is a very good performance. I was watching to prepare for this. I watched, the Siskel and Ebert episode on The Last Seduction, but I also watched all of their, like, um, Memo to the Academy, 1994, right? Where they would have an episode where they would, um, you know, put out their their urgings for, you know, these aren't maybe who the Academy is going to consider. And it's a really interesting window into what was popularly sort of seen as the Oscar conversation then, because at the moment, mm-hmm. 
Best Actress, they both were like, well, the given is Jodie Foster and Nell, and now we're going to make our, you know, pleas to the Academy. And Ebert was like Jessica Lange. He backed Jessica Lange in Blue Sky because he apparently did not think she was a sure thing at that point whenever they made that episode. And Siskel got behind Winona Ryder in Little Women and maybe also got behind Miranda Richardson and Tom and Viv. And then neither one of them uh, got behind Susan Sarandon and the client because I remember later in that season when they did the If We Picked the Winners episode, they were both very down on Sarandon getting that nomination for the client, which I was like, hey, that's a movie I like. It's a performance I like. Um, but it's interesting how like Jodie Foster was the only sort of sure thing seen from like a distance into that mm-hmm. season. And she, as we've talked about before, we suspect wasn't a front runner only because she was so recently a two-time Oscar winner going into that season. Mm-hmm. But into this sort of like wild little hurricane mix of of awards for actresses that year, Fiorentino picked up quite a few of the precursor stuff and she was ended up being obviously not eligible. They ended up, I, I read into, I wish there was more literature out there on the lawsuit. Apparently they like filed suit in December and by January they had dropped the suit. Apparently it was mm-hmm. just like a lost cause, which I mean, the Academy has its law bylaws. They're on the books. I imagine there's probably not a whole lot to do with getting around them. There certainly had to have been conversation about some type of petition uh, yeah. to the Academy happening if she's already winning critics prizes. Cause she wins New York. Right. Which I'm I think sure that's what sort of spurred that, it on. That was like, Oh, right. we're like, we're winning an we early critics really awards. Out of this. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and it ends up getting the movie attention anyway. So like, this is a movie that is remembered now in part because of that controversy. So, mm-hmm. you know, in the under, you know, no press is bad press kind of a thing. Um, but it would have been nice because, like, especially given, and we'll talk about this with Karina, certainly, um, the direction that Fiorentino's career goes from here and the fact that mm-hmm. it ends up being pretty truncated, that it would have been nice to have seen this career high point of hers get recognized with an Oscar nomination. Yeah. Yeah. Do we want to get into the plot description, though, Chris? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, and then we'll get, and then we'll um, see how easily I can handle this convoluted movie. Exactly, exactly. Um, we were going to uh, have Karina do this, and then we thought we only have an hour with Karina. We don't want to uh, waste it, forcing her to uh, go through this torturous exercise that we make each other go through. We want to give the listeners what they want to hear from the conversation with Karina, and hopefully exactly. we did that. Um, let me pull out my stopwatch and. All right, so Chris, before we get into the plot description, I'm going to say that we are talking about The Last Seduction today, directed by John Dahl, written by Steve Baranek, starring Linda Fiorentino, Peter Berg, Bill Pullman, Bill Nunn, J.T. Walsh, Dean Norris. This is our fifth Dean Norris movie. One more Dean Norris, and we're doing a (laughs) quiz about him. It's very funny. Um, It's also our second Dean Norris in a row, which we did totally accidentally, so that's funny. Um, Breaking Bad's Dean Norris premiered on television on HBO July 17th, 1994, infamously. It then opened in theaters on October 26th, 1994. Chris, if you're ready, I can get the stopwatch for your 60-second plot description of The Last Seduction. Uh, Yeah, let's do it. All right, and begin. 
All right, so Bridget, uh, played by Linda Fiorentino, is a telemarketer. She lives in New York City with her dumbass husband. She dupes him into doing a drug deal that gets him $700,000. She runs off with the money, intending to go to Chicago, but gets somehow stuck in upstate New York. Uh, I don't know what map she is following. Uh, she has sex with this hot idiot named Mike, um, thinking that she's going to be out of town by the next day. It turns out she isn't, and then she has to take on new telemarketing work. Turns out Mike works there, so she keeps fucking him. 30 seconds. Uh, meanwhile, her dipshit husband tries to get a uh, investigator to find her and bring her back, including the money. She ends up killing him in a car wreck and gets away with it by being like, hey, cops, this was a black man. It's really ugly and bad. Yeah. Um, and then uh, she then dupes seconds. Mike that she's going to try to get him to kill her husband in this whole scheme, lying to him. Eventually, when he meets up with her husband, they figure out what's going on. She shows up and then kills him by macing, dumping a whole can of mace down his throat. And then she uh, ends up uh, having sex with Mike, staging it as a rape over the phone with the police. And then he gets arrested and she gets away with everything. 18 seconds over, but uh, I did have to laugh when you had her be like, hey, cops. Because that's basically what she does. And that is yeah. just like um, everything in this movie. Uh, comes surprisingly easy to her because she's so um, smarter ballsy. than everyone else. Well, and she's sort of like she's she's ballsy enough to just sort of like go for it, right? She's so brazen right. about how she goes about this plan of hers. There's, I mean, like like I said up top, there's stuff about it that is not good. <laughs> like yeah. in a way that the movie doesn't feel like is you know commenting on but she she uses whatever is at her disposal with to manipulate these people pull one over on them yeah and get ahead and seemingly without breaking a sweat and constantly being two steps ahead of everybody intellectually which itself is fun but some of the ickier moments of it are less fun i think yeah i think because we're supposed to at least in part be impressed by her and be, you know, on the on along for the ride with uh, how she's pulling this over on Peterberg. The fact that in the last reel of this movie, she uncovers, she unfurls this uh, sort of transphobic twist to the thing where she um, went to Buffalo and investigated his background and found out that he had. Uh, married a woman and uh, found out that this woman was trans and freaked out. And this is his sort of thing that's haunting his past, right? And this, you know, yada, yada, 1990s transphobia, where this is sort of seen as a given as something that he would want to, you know, be willing to, you know, do anything to to run away from and cover up and yada, mm-hmm. yada, yada. And it's of its time, but also you don't want to sort of sweep that you know, sweep it under the rug with that kind of thing. Right. It would be it would be nice if you could go back and watch a good fun movie like that and not have to have that sort of whack a mole kind of pop up. It is up a from really entertaining movie and uh, with a, an especially entertaining performance, but it's a complicated movie yeah. as well to enjoy. Yes, it is. Um, but I don't think we should waste too much more time. Was there anything else we wanted to get into before we hand off uh, to the portion where we're uh, talking to Karina? No, let's get into it. Let's uh let's uh 
Let's uh, let's take our listeners there. All right. So enjoy our discussion with You Must Remember This host, Karina Longworth. All right. So we are here with our special guest for this uh, episode on The Last Seduction. Uh, a very notable guest and certainly far more knowledgeable on this subject than either uh, Chris, you or I are. So we're very excited to welcome her and we kind of don't want to waste any time. You know her as the host of the You Must Remember This podcast, which is coming up with a miniseries on erotic 90s. We're super, super Already excited. Already begun as of airing. The, thank you for keeping me on the ball of that, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Already airing. You do not have to waste any more time. You can jump right into the erotic 90s. And I think we all want to do exactly that. But uh, welcome our guest, Karina Longworth. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. We're super, super excited. Chris, when we yes. have been bandying around uh, the last seduction, obviously the... For some time. For some time. We Yes, this is a movie that we, this was on our, our listener's choice at one point, right? It was a listener's choice option back when we did the Focus Features miniseries because this is an October films, which October films gave birth to USA films, which That's gave right. birth to Focus Features. That's right. October films, which fought the good fight and tried to sue the Academy to get... Uh, this uh, movie Oscar eligible, which we'll definitely talk about. And uh, listeners were fighting hard to get this movie. I believe this movie was a valiant second place, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. But um, I think it was everybody who knew kind of the Oscar story or has seen this movie because this movie has very ardent fans. Yeah. Uh, wanted uh, to have us talk about it. And I can't think of a better time to have <laughs> anyone talk about it than have Karina here to join us to talk about it. Thank you, Karina. We're going to get into the lawsuit soon enough because I definitely want to talk about it. But I, we are a, a podcast about the Oscars and about movies that fell short of the Oscars. But we wanted to sort of bring you in and ask you about your uh, Oscars origin story. When do you first remember sort of being aware of the Oscars? Is Are the Oscars like a thing you're particularly interested in or is it sort of a uh a, a passing sort of something you put up with to uh with your love of the movies so i mean these days i guess i'm less interested in it than i used to be but i definitely sure. grew grew up um super interested in it my parents would always have an oscar party um of varying sizes sometimes nice. it would just be like kind of us but sometimes there'd be a lot of people and my mom loved to throw parties where she would make like theme foods. Mm. And so she was definitely making, you know, Last Emperor, you know, oh, chicken nice. or whatever <laughs> um, and things like that. And, but the first time I remember it being something where it wasn't just like a thing my parents were into, yeah. but like something where I understood that everybody was into it to some degree was the year where Dirty Dancing was nominated for Best Song. Oh, yeah. Um, and like I had gone to dance class that day and everybody in dance class was like, I can't wait because they're going to, like, perform the song on the Oscars. And then it was like, oh, actually, this thing that my parents are into is cool. That's always surprising to know, that something that your parents are into <laughs> is, like, something that other people you know are into that's a little mm -hmm. sometimes destabilizing. Now I want to look up and yeah. see what beat that song. Uh, or did it win? No, did, it did, won. It, it did win. Won. Oh, okay. And I Thank have God. a really vivid memory of, like, sitting on the carpet. I was, I think, seven years old sitting on the carpet like below the TV looking up as they performed like the song and it was I can't remember the name of the guy who who who's the guy who sings oh, I've had Bill the time Medley of my life. from uh yeah. from the Righteous Brothers yes so yes, yeah yes, yes. like he definitely had a beard and a vibe and he was singing while <laughs> other people were dancing nice that's an interesting lineup i'm looking at that now it's uh it's i've had the time of my life it's nothing's going to stop us now from mannequin mm. should have won 
Uh, I love that song. <laughs> it's so corny, but I love it. Shakedown, uh, the um, Bob Seger song from Beverly Hills Cop 2. Uh, the song from uh, the end of The Princess Bride, Storybook Love. And Cry Freedom from the movie Cry Freedom, a song that I can say I have never heard. But um, it's an eclectic lineup. 80s best song lineups were the best. That was when uh, 80s music was was hitting the charts all over the place. So that was a fun decade for that. And pre-Disney takeover of the category, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Because two years later, Little Mermaid would happen. Yeah. The 87 Oscars also... uh, uh, crossover pretty well with your erotic 80s series because obviously that was the season the season that fatal attraction got yeah. best picture and best actress nominations and uh did so well that year yeah obviously we want to jump into uh erotic 90s which has now started to air we uh chris and i were both i think we've mentioned it like several times on the podcast as we were <laughs> sort of going along like different erotic 80s stuff that we were um uh, would cross over with certain uh, subjects that we were talking about so was that something that sort of early on in erotic 80s you were like oh i got to keep this going at some point like i can't, this this conversation keeps going into a whole other decade and this is something i'm going to want to continue i always knew i was going to do it it wasn't like i i had conceived it as being about the 20 years leading up to um, Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, that's fantastic. That's a good uh, signpost. Another movie that we have been talking about doing forever and ever. (laughs) Um, That's definitely one with Oscar buzz that was not fulfilled. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I remember (laughs) thinking very specifically, and I was like still a teenager then, but I remember in my early sort of like Oscar dork phase being like, Nicole Kidman is, this is going to be her big Oscar breakthrough. I was like as certain Mm -hmm. of that as I was of anything. And... Um, ultimately didn't happen. Uh, the movie, when it was premiering, had the way it was publicized and such, there was such kind of a mystery box whisper campaign around that movie. Obviously, it's an adaptation, but I mean, an adaptation from Kubrick could mean anything. Um, so, I mean, some of it kind of almost dies as soon as people see that movie and there were harsh reactions with it, etc. Yeah, and I also, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but, like, my memory of it was that, first of all, the reviews were pretty negative almost across yeah. the board. I think Janet yeah. Maslin was, like, the big outlier. But then also, like, the um, by that fall, you know, everybody started talking about Tom Cruise and Magnolia. And then it's, like, mm-hmm. that's going to be the thing that gets the nomination. And he's not going to get a nomination for Eyes Wide Shut. And he's not going to be, like, pushing Eyes Wide Shut. And that was also <laughs> the the sort of... The Cruise nomination for Magnolia, which was also seen as this sort of stepping outside of his star persona, that was him doing something different. The interesting thing about something like Eyes Wide Shut is that's a movie that played with his star persona and sort of like played within those boundaries in some really interesting ways. I think some of the most interesting Tom Cruise stuff throughout his career is stuff that almost comments on his, you know, star status in a way that like I feel like he's... I don't know, a particularly s- – the degrees to which he is and isn't self-aware is always very interesting to me in, in <laughs> Tom Cruise movies, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> so uh, just sort of going through the list of, like, all the movies and the movie stars that you talk about throughout Erotic 90s, it's a fantastic mix of – and I'm saying this, like, as a complete – like 90s kid who started the decade. I was probably too young for a lot of these movies. I'm of the age range where like 
we live we I grew up in Buffalo and so we lived close enough to Canada to get like the Canadian television stations. And so people <laughs> we would you know be like out on a like uh, Friday night or whatever and people would I remember would be like oh did you know that like basic instinct is on the Canadian station tonight and like <laughs> on Canadian TV they didn't have to censor anything. So you would like be you know everybody would rush home and go and watch basic instinct un- uncensored on Canadian TV. Um so those movies, especially those early 90s movies, were very much like, you know, uh, taboo, but in a really uh, interesting way. Yeah. I mean, I I snuck in to see Sliver twice in the theater. Nice. <laughs> um, I definitely also saw Indecent Proposal at the theater at City Walk. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was 12 years old for both of those movies. So I remember seeing The Hand That Rocks the Cradle very early. Like mm-hmm. two – I was – I was probably a little bit too young, and I remember being scandalized by the stuff at the very beginning, the very, the sort of, the very, you know, the sinister doctor, and (laughs) she has this, like, very graphic miscarriage scene in that movie. And, um, but it's all these movie stars that now I look back and, like, I have such, you know, fondness for the, you know, the Sharon Stones, the Rebecca de Mornays, um, Demi Moore, all of these actresses who were, like, the biggest thing going. And now looking back, you're like, oh, wow, they were all treated so, if not outright shittily, just like really complicated uh, relationship that American culture had with these actresses. Yeah, I mean, it was, it felt like just, you know, because I collect magazines and I I use them as research for the show. And I mean, you just read these magazine profiles and it just feels like it's all about sort of like capturing these women and like putting them in awkward situations like where you can like, be hostile towards them and they just have to take it. And then God forbid one of those movies bombs. And then it felt like there was almost yeah. like a justification then in the culture of, you know, the the punching down at movies like Body of Evidence or Strip Tease or uh, Showgirls. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great example. Um I mean it's it's not exactly news that that American culture and America itself has these like very uh complicated and not great relationship with women and sex but this is a uh a great prism through which to talk about all of that. And obviously Linda Fiorentino in The Last Seduction plays into that greatly. I think this is a movie that was very celebrated by critics but it was considered a very hard sell. And I think part of the reason why it ends up in the position that it's in with being a technicality excluded by the Oscars is the prospects for theatrical distribution for this movie were really small and were really, you know, they ultimately put it on HBO because they assumed they weren't going to be getting a theatrical release. So, yeah, I mean, like, I think that one thing that's like notable is that it, when they were making these decisions, it was sort of before Pulp Fiction. It was kind of before mm-hmm. a lot of these movies that opened up the art house box office. Like it's kind of like opened up the gate between the art house and the mainstream box office. Mm-hmm. And so this was perceived as like the kind of movie that like plays in some college towns, but like doesn't right. really make any money in February of 1994 when it's at the Berlin Film Festival and the rights get sold to HBO. Right. And John mm-hmm. Dolph sort of had the same thing happen. That same year with Red Rock West, where um, I was watching, I pulled up before we started today, I pulled up the Siskel and Ebert episode that they talked about The Last Seduction. And they mentioned that like John Dahl's Red Rock West was a movie that had been released on video. And then they were like, and then people started talking about it. And then they put it in theaters after the fact. And like that was, it was a very sort of like late 
a bloomer in that respect too. Nineties, yeah. uh, the realities of nineties cinema. Well, I uh, kind of looping back to what we were talking about of like sneaking into these movies uh, during childhood and such. This episode is going to be airing the episode that you're talking about, Julia Roberts and Pretty Woman. And Pretty Woman is a movie that, as long as I've had any type of cinema literacy, has been a part of my life. I was the four year old watching Pretty Woman like it was perfectly normal, um, and. I I think I remember in that episode you talk about uh, it was the first R-rated movie you saw in a theater, too. And yeah, uh, that movie specifically is one, especially, I think, for whole like multiple generations of people. Um, they're watching where you know, they're watching this thing that they maybe otherwise wouldn't normally be able to watch. But it's kind of this normalized um, depiction of or a normalized okay movie for everyone to watch that depicts sex that they might not be able to watch in a different way. Yeah, um, I mean the R rating should have made it so that not everybody <laughs> could watch it, but somehow people didn't treat that movie that way. And it's mm-hmm. so interesting. I mean, I, I at 10 years old, I was not the only person that I knew who was my age who had seen that movie. It was like right. you were supposed to have seen it to be mm-hmm. like participate in the fourth grade discourse. Well, exactly. <laughs> And movies sort of had more of a – there were hitting more areas of where, like, there was a music video, right? Like, the Roxette music video existed, and that had scenes from the movie sort of interspersed. And it – if not – even if everything wasn't made for all ages, we all were participating in the culture in a lot more of a, you know, together kind of a way. Yeah, I talk about this a little bit in this episode that I do in Erotic 90s on Madonna – where um, as like a 12-year-old super fan of hers, I was excluded from the sex book. I was excluded from the Justify My Love video, but I was able to like see the Justify My Love video on Nightline. And, you know, you're (laughs) able to like, like TV, like TV news would like play clips of the erotica video as a way of explaining that MTV was not going to show the erotica video. Right, right. And and then like you would, I would, I personally like, because I couldn't watch those videos in full, like I would become obsessed with like the videos for like the lesser songs on erotica, like Bad Girl. I remember in third grade, our third grade teacher sort of like gossiping almost like you know like between classes or whatever like chit-chatting about the uh like a prayer video and the controversy around the like a prayer video and we went to a catholic school so like that that movie was obviously such a hot button thing but yeah that was sort of you you know you experienced culture through the little like whatever keyhole you could find uh in the culture which was very fun I ended up catching a lot of that on the back end through the behind the music episode, through the <laughs> Hollywood story. <laughs> totally. Yeah. The you lore of it all. your magazine collection, and we are kind of research nerds in mm-hmm. that way. Do you, are you constantly gathering things or have you kept a lot of, like, were you a magazine person when you were young and have kept them since? I wish. I mean, I was a magazine person when I was young. I, I, sub- Starting in like 91 or 92, I subscribed to Entertainment Weekly and Spin and all these other magazines. And I lived um, I lived near the intersection. I don't know if you guys know Los Angeles, but I lived near the intersection of La- uh, Laurel Canyon and Ventura in Studio City where there was a huge newsstand, which actually still exists. There's almost no newsstands left in, in Los Angeles, but that one's still there. And so I like could just walk there like either from elementary school or from my house and like, you know, browse – 
all the film magazines, all the music magazines, all the fashion yeah. magazines. So I was always a magazine person, but um, I couldn't take them all with me to college, and my dad threw them away. <gasps> oh, so, no. <laughs> so um, yeah, I don't. I had no magazine collection until a few years ago when I realized I wanted to write about Confidential magazine, and I realized that like I couldn't find a single library anywhere that I had access to and through a Google search anywhere, at least in the U.S., that had a complete collection of Confidential magazine. Yeah. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll try to form one. And so I just, like, created a spreadsheet that told me, like, all the the issues and, like, just started these um, eBay searches to try to find them. And I have... I have all of them except for, I think, six now. Um, oh, fantastic. And so um, eventually I'll have that complete collection. But once I started buying those, you know, eBay starts to suggest other things that you might want to buy. Right. Um, and then it, it, I realized that, like, when I go – let's say I go to the Academy Library and I pull a clippings file for a star or a filmmaker. They never seem to include Movie Line magazine. And Movie Line was a big magazine that I read oh, yeah. in the 90s that had great profiles. And so I just started buying up a lot of Movie Line magazines. And then I can't remember what project it was for. It might have been the Polly Platt season, but like I wanted to know a little bit more about like, um, like what sort of mainstream feminist discourse was in like a specific year. Mm-hmm. And so I started buy. I bought like a lot of like twenty issues of Ms. Magazine, um, and now that's like kind of on my eBay targets. Um, and then when it came to doing erotic eighties. The libraries were kind of still closed for COVID when I started doing that sure. research. Um, so I just started buying magazines based on these different topics, like buying, you know, every Playgirl magazine that had a movie male movie star on the cover and um, buying all these Fantastic. Richard Gere magazines and Jack Nicholson magazines. And actually – and I bought like all these Playboys from ni- – I bought every Playboy from 1980 – and I was actually in Serbia <laughs> because uh, my <laughs> husband was shooting a movie in Serbia. And so I was doing a lot of this eBay buying from Serbia. And I uh-huh. my credit card got canceled because um, – Somebody thought it was – It was like a fraud warning because I was buying so many Playboys <laughs> from Serbia and having them sent to Los Angeles. To so. be fair, like credit – like uh, good on your credit card company for looking out for you. Because they were uh, – yeah. You have to explain to them, listen, you don't understand. This is my job. <laughs> totally legit. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Joe and I will eventually one day have the full assortment of EW Fall movie previews. Yeah, that's We've the goal. talked a lot about, you know, formative either magazine covers uh, such as that that are just kind of burned in my memory. Did you have any type of like treasured Bible when you were one of, uh, when you were like a young cinephile um, and such that like just really sticks out in your memory that you love? Um, You know, honestly, like I, I think I was kind of more – when I was a teenager, I was more interested in music. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Spin Magazine was really, really important to me. And it, I, I really feel like I learned how to write from reading Spin Magazine. Yeah. And so my one of my most cherished issues of that was this issue from 1993. And it was like they did this glossary of alternative culture from A to Z. And the cover had a shirtless Evan Dando making out with Adrian Shelley. Oh, and so I wow. re I repurchased that magazine recently, and I talk about it a little bit in one of the episodes in Erotic Nineties. But what I never um, realized when I was thirteen years old reading Spin Magazine was that the editor of Spin Magazine at that time was an AIDS denier. Oh no! And, oh shit! <laughs> and and in this issue, like they she wrote a edit- letter from the editor, like a reported piece that she went to Africa to report, and then like. 
one of the items in the A to Z glossary, all of which are like, question everything the media is telling you about AIDS because oh, we don't God. know what causes it. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's yeah. an eye opener. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, yeah. never have heroes, yeah. kids. Um, wow. That's crazy. <laughs> Um, not like anything like that would be happening today about any uh, about, about any scientifically. She proven, was just uh, asking questions. Yeah, right. Just, <laughs> just she was just questions. doing her own research. Yeah. She went all the she way to Africa to do her really own research. Was, yeah. Oh boy. Um, all right. I want to uh, sort of wade our way into the uh, the last seduction, and obviously, the last seduction is a movie that you uh, talk about in erotic nineties. Was that a movie that jumped out to you as you were planning? That uh, that series as like, oh, this is definitely something that uh, was a major signpost for 90s erotic thrillers. Yeah, actually, before I even started doing erotic 80s, um, I think it was maybe December of 2020. I had um, I was watching the, the for some reason, I think it was like a neo-noir series on the Criterion channel. Mm. And Last Seduction was on that. And I had never seen it before. So I watched it on that. And then. I think I was in a hotel room like a couple of months later and I turned on the TV and Disclosure was on. And I realized that these two movies came out in the same year and they have like – both have like a brunette woman who's like styled almost identical. Yeah. Who is like a ball buster who like there's – they're basically making this connection between like a woman who's like business-like and like men losing power. Yeah. And so I knew that absolutely that that was going to be an episode. One of the things that jumps out to you about this movie from the very beginning is that I think it's the first scene, like the credits are still rolling and she's got this job as a telephone sales uh, operator. And she's so um, aggressive just on that level of just like barking out orders throughout this entire room and um, yeah, I mean, it's like a female parody of the masculinity of Glengarry Glen Ross. I thought, uh-huh. yes, that was what uh, came to my mind, too. Yeah, totally. And so, I mean, that like talk about like a threat of a woman who can embody that kind of masculinity. And that's why I think it's it, Pullman's an interesting character or actor to cast opposite her, too, because it almost feels when you first see him, you're just like, this is an odd Bill Pullman character, because I think so much of his persona in the movies, to me at least, is like locked into movies like uh, Sleepless in Seattle or even like his Independence Day character I was or whatever. Say, and he's a <laughs> few years from removed from playing an American president. Oh my, isn't yeah. Independence Day the same year as this? Isn't it 1994? No, it's 96, oh, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah. But yeah, like right around that time, and, and uh, Sleepless in Seattle was just the year before. So I think those are the two movies that, you know, I sort of think of. But he's he's playing this, you know, sort of co-conspirator of hers and obviously her her husband who is overtly uh, physically abusive to her. And yet also, you never quite imagine that he's a match for her. Like, like she's – nobody in this movie is. Right. Like, they're, they're, mm-hmm. that is not a dramatic thrust of The Last Seduction is can she get over on all these guys? Like, it's – like, obviously, yes, she can. There, She is so much more well-equipped – to navigate and i think that's part of the thrill of the movie is watching her have just the run of all of these situations she's always in charge yeah i mean the title the last seduction it's not the last time she's being seduced you know (laughs) (laughs) right right exactly i think it's interesting that you draw the parallel 
uh, between this movie and Disclosure. I'd also thought of Basic Instinct as well. And uh, rereading Ebert's review, he frames her as a villain of this movie. And I don't get that at all from watching (laughs) this. I feel like we're supposed to have fun watching her uh, get one over on all these guys. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's intended to be kind of a revenge movie. Mm-hmm. Um, more you root for her. I think it's complicated because the gender politics are, you know, somewhat dated. Certainly, like, the, there's this, you know, kind of C-level plot involving trans stuff, which is kind of icky. Um, I was going to say, the way like, that, the way that, the, the way that she weaponizes transphobia is pretty bad. So that yeah. be, that complicates yeah. whether or not you can sort of fully root for her. But I think in the moment this movie was released, like, everybody, you know— the point of view of this movie and of the presumed viewer was that, um, you know, everybody's just going to think that this thing that the Peter Berg character, um, the, his like previous marriage, it like makes him less of a man. Like that right. was the presumption. Well, like I, I thought my thought at the end of the movie was just like, man, like you're never safe watching a 90s movie that trans panic <laughs> will just jump out of nowhere. And it really does kind of just like, oh, you yeah. know, you're you're not suspecting it. And there it is. But she is she's a character who weapons. She weaponizes trans panic. She weaponizes the racism mm-hmm. of the the local cops uh, in a certain totally. in, uh, that situation. So she's she's an opportunist in a way where like which to me, it's like. That's, you know, this is a this is a noir movie. We don't need to, you know, find her to be a saint. But there is that sort of very 90s way of sort of casually dabbling in things like trans panic or racism in a way that like, well, you know, it's a little it's cavalier, right? It's sort of. Yeah, which is accurate to the way a lot of people felt at the time. And it was accurate to sort of the default point of view of culture. Um, but it's hard to say whether or not this movie is critiquing her behavior at all. Um, yeah. And it's also like I think one of the things that's interesting about it, but I'm not sure it's like it also just really complicates whether or not you can see her as a sort of hero or a villain or even a protagonist is that you never mm-hmm. get inside her head at all. No. Mm-hmm. Right. She's a completely opaque character. But you know yeah. that you know that you in some ways like she – you know, the movie wants you to think she's superior to all everybody else. It's almost like the most POV character in the thing is J.T. Walsh, who just sort of <laughs> observes her and is just kind of like, you know, uh, kind of marvels at at what she's willing to do and, you know, laughs it off a little bit, but is but is both impressed and a little afraid <laughs> of her at the same time, which I liked. Um, a lot of good... Uh, 90s character actor stuff. JT Wall shows up, Bill Nunn shows up. Um, Somehow we have managed to do like two Dean Norris movies in the last (laughs) week. So he's this like odd little uh, where we've now done a bunch of Dean Norris movies. It's uh, it's, it's interesting. You never know when he's going to show up. (laughs) This era of Peter Berg, too. Like, obviously, Fiorentino is the more interesting conversation, and we're not done with her yet. Mm -hmm. But like, I remember having a weird crush on Peter Berg. I mean, he's hot in this movie. He definitely is. He's like is. a hot he dummy. Absolutely is. Yeah, yes. he's a hot <laughs> dumb guy. Yes. He's a him. I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I remember he was in a movie around ish this time called Aspen Extreme, where he played this, like, him and his buddy were on this, like, ski weekend or whatever. And the only thing I remember about it is Finola Hughes, who I knew 
primarily from soaps because she's a general hospital. She currently, I believe, is on general hospital. Um, but she played the like older woman who, like, in this context, I'm pretty sure was like 40s, yeah, like uh-huh. older woman. But like having an affair with this 20-something sort of ski dummy. Again, like I think the dummy part of it really was part of the character. Um, he was also on Chicago Hope around this time, too. And I just remember having like an odd crush on Peter Berg, which is very funny to think about now in the context of him only making like Mark Wahlberg uh, Patriot you know, sniper movies, movies or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. He's good in this movie, though, I think, to, to what, you know, they need him to be, which is, mm-hmm. you know... Knowing Ugh. his career would go to that type of machismo, though, really works in the movie's favor. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know uh, what she's trying to subvert throughout it. He really does fall for every single one of like every step along the way, where it doesn't seem obviously we were we're the ones who know we're watching a noir movie, right? So we have a little bit <laughs> of an advantage there, but like it still feels like she's not particularly sweet to him ever even in the good times right even in like the seduction of him she's never uh sweet or kind or like she's you know from the very beginning she's confrontational right it's you know drop your pants and let's see it you know essentially and and yet he sort of is willing to do anything (laughs) Any scenario she presents to him, she's he's willing to do it. So I mean, it's this interesting, complicated thing because on one hand, it's like you know there are no, there's no girl like that in that little cow town or whatever, and then also there's his desperation to leave this town, and she thinks he's he thinks she's her his ticket out. But then we come to find out like what happened when he did leave before, and so yeah. you know there is something that's really. Um, you know, he's he's like the desperate character here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's so funny. Uh, 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 being from Buffalo, as I am, really <laughs> funny to watch this movie and watch. As soon as they did the trace of the call and they're like 716 area code, I'm like, oh, they're there. Um, and like there are farms. If you drive, you know, 25 minutes out of the city or whatever, you will probably get far enough to find, you know, farm like towns or whatever but they really do she especially talks about this movie as if it is the middle of absolutely nowhere and as it's a result not exactly he, the most direct route to chicago i think <laughs> well she drives through canada it's so funny that he has this dark past in buffalo and it's like referenced you know the new time is just like oh man i'll never go back to buffalo and it's just like, you know, yeah. and in what some way that's a little bit of a noir thing too right just like the person with the you know the past from this town you know sort of mid-sized town in the middle of america but i just thought that was so funny every single time was not filmed in buffalo i will say and i could tell that one scene where she goes there i'm like this is probably queens this is (laughs) this is not (laughs) this is not buffalo it was fine it was good joe reed the great purveyor of upstate new york i have to (laughs) it's me and christine baranski man like we're the we're the ones holding it up for uh for the old hometown to kind of take it back just to the nature of the character i think part of the reason why it's easy to root for this character it's purely the level of linda fiorentino's performance she just on a performance level she's so fun to watch it feels like she is absolutely getting the tone of what this is both like a 90s modern noir and uh you know riff on the femme fatale riff on now dated but uh 
certainly of the time of what the gender role was expected to be, what the general gender roles sometimes were within the genre, even. I think she's she's so much fun. Yeah, she's absolutely like the most like you can see why critics really fell in love with that performance and were willing to champion it, you know, as we got into year-end awards. One of the things that struck me talking about this as, you know, in the context of erotic thrillers and and you know the genre of it all is the sex scenes are very much not super explicit in a way that sets it apart from a bunch of the other movies Karina that I imagine you're talking about body of evidence and and disclosures you mentioned well nothing and... is as explicit as body of evidence <laughs> no, exactly <laughs> i watched that movie within the last 10 years and that was one that I didn't watch at the time because, again, like I was such a young teenager mm-hmm. and it was so notorious. So I had built it up so much in my mind about like what kind of depravity <laughs> did they get up to in that movie? And it's and, you know, they do, you know, it, it they do kind of hang a lot on that one scene of Madonna pouring the hot wax onto uh, onto Willem Dafoe. But um, what do you make of the fact that this movie was this wasn't like a notorious uh, erotic thriller at the time in terms of like there wasn't controversy over this movie because of its sex obviously no i mean but, she's topless in it i think maybe you see a little bit of his butt but right. um like i think the most memorable sex scenes are like she's clothed you know like there's a scene in the car yes. and then the scene on on like the chain link fence outside of the bar and you know everything that was written about the movie they talk about the fence scene yes Peterberg was interviewed by Vulture about the, that sex scene, and he's like, yeah, Linda Fiorentino just kind of came in and basically uh, directed the scene and how it was going to go, um, which I think is phenomenal. Yeah, there, there's a I – don't, I don't remember if it was that interview or one from, um, like, 1994, but there was one interview with him that I read where he was like, I was nervous about doing the scene. I didn't want it to be pornographic. And she was like, just trust me. I'll make you look like your cock is two feet big. <laughs> <laughs> the other person – you know, talking about Linda Fiorentino, obviously, you have to get into the sort of greater career arc for her. And that's something that comes to an end – not too not too long after this movie she's obviously you know hugely acclaimed for this and the critics were were all behind her in this but she remind this career arc reminds me a little bit of one of your erotic 80s subject which is Sean Young mm-hmm. which is Linda Fiorentino had sort of amassed this reputation as being somebody who was very hard to work with and a bunch of people would sort of tell tales out of school and were like kind of not shy about sharing their their bad work experiences i remember listening to the director's commentary on dogma and kevin smith like multiple times talks about how he, he wishes he never cast her he spent decades talking shit about her i would listen very recently to the blank check episode on men in black and they talked about how both tommy lee jones and will smith like made it a condition on their coming back to make a second movie that she not be involved in it uh, what did your what did you make of that as you sort of dug into her her history in Hollywood? I mean, it's funny. There's this quote that I put in the in the episode about it, um, where 
you know, John Dahl, when he was going to cast her in Last Seduction, like she was on nobody's list to be cast in anything at that point. She had such a reputation for being difficult. And he like confronted her when he was auditioning her, like, why do you have this reputation? And she said something like, everybody hires me to play these sexy bitches and then they don't think it's going to rub off on me. Um, and so that's there, an interesting there line. was this yeah. sense of like there was a certain amount of method acting that maybe she was doing, but maybe was expected of her. Um, I think that she she did kind of it, you know, in the last introduction, maybe it's fine for her to say, I'm going to direct this sex scene. But generally on most movie sets, like a woman saying, like, I want to take charge here is not um, the thing that is sort of protocol. Um, and maybe a, a male actor could get away with it in a way that a female actor could not, especially yeah. in 1995, mm-hmm. 1996. Um, you know, also just in terms of her career after Last Seduction, you know, she is so in demand after this movie. She's really the toast of the town. And then her next film is Jade, um, yeah. which is a massive disaster in which she is not given very much to do. Um, or at least it's not nearly as interesting a role as The Last Seduction. And then she does yeah. Men in Black, which is like, you know, certainly like not – you're not seeing that promise that you saw in The Last Seduction in that movie. And then it's dogma and then it's kind of just like back to straight to video. So Yeah, it's a, it's a bummer. We had just done – semi-recently we had done our episode on After Hours. And I think, Chris, mm, the yeah. both of us were really, really high on – uh, her performance. Her performance she as brings... the weird sculptor roommate. <laughs> yeah, She's we were we, the, the the energy she brings to that movie uh, is is really fun, and it's a little bit of a similar energy, right? Where she's you know. Uh, She's she's not impressed by him. She's not sort of, you know, willing to give him any kind of benefit of the doubt or anything like that. But uh, she she brings a lot to that that movie and that performance. Yeah. Yeah, Jade's yeah, Jade's Jade's a uh I had forgotten about that movie. Yeah. That was another one which that felt sort of notorious back in the back in the day. Completely. I, I mean that was Joe Esterhaus? Yeah, I mean Joe Esterhaus wrote that and Showgirls and Jade came out three weeks after Showgirls. Oh wow. I didn't realize it was that close. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. No wonder he was somebody who definitely sort of broke out into a sort of broader cultural conversation about <laughs> I think a lot of the conversation around like sex thrillers in the mid 90s surrounded him specifically mm-hmm. and sort of this you know is he kind of taking over Hollywood with you know these trash movies or whatever well you know he dug a grave for himself by giving all these quotes about how showgirls was like a religious story um, about like a a woman's uh, redemption, and um, oh, wow. you know he he, and he, then he like went on the press tour and told children that they should get like sneak into the theater with fake IDs, and um, <laughs> so he, when the movie failed, he was really kind of setting himself up as a target. Yeah. And then yeah, when Jade yeah. when Jade came out three weeks later, it was like all the reviews of Jade were about Esther Haas and Showgirls. Um, I, oh, wow. I don't think Jade's a good movie. I think Jade's kind of a mess, and it's not. Yeah. It's kind of like a waste of a great premise and an interesting cast, but um, it was not like treated fairly for sure. That was one of the David Caruso leaves NYPD Blue to for the movies. Yeah. Movies? Yeah. 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 Um, another story that I remember being like very, very prominent, very, that was, I think I was a little too young to experience the Shelley Long leaves television <laughs> for a movie career, uh, part of 
the culture, but like I was definitely around for everybody wagging their finger at David Caruso. Totally, he was for, crucified for several years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's so funny to think about that too, because like Clooney is only a few years later after, um, and obviously Clooney sticks around with ER a lot longer. I think he's with that show for like six seasons. But he was, you know, Dust Till Dawn, I think, was only in, like, the second or third season of of ER yeah. that he's making that movie. So, like, he was already straying by that point. Yeah, I mean, I think that Clooney became kind of the biggest star that, you know, ever rose from television, at least of his era. But he had, like, yeah. some false starts and, you know, not all oh, those yeah. movies he made on hiatus from ER were hits and – like, right. what, what was the romantic comedy with Michelle Pfeiffer? One you know, fine was, day. Yeah, there's yeah. A, a few <laughs> things like that before you get to Ocean's Eleven, so. Sure, sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it is funny how, like, even just having a little bit of the whiff of success really kind of insulates you from yeah. um, <laughs> that kind of conversation. Chris, do you want to uh, wade us into the, the story about the, the awards campaign and, and October Films ultimately suing? The Academy? Yeah, so this was somewhat of a critically-led thing. Uh, Linda Fiorentino's performance was uh, very lauded by critics. She ends up winning with New York film critics. And so um, because the film premiered on HBO before it had a theatrical life, the Academy deemed it ineligible. And uh, late in the year, in December, October Films... Uh, ends up suing the Academy. So it becomes this kind of cause a little bit. So you can see how she would become a critical rallying point around this, you know, (laughs) in decades before uh, what is cinema, what is television, uh, the Academy deeming that this was a television movie. And you even see it, uh, National Board of Review decides, okay, so this is a TV movie. We're going to give it an award for being a TV movie. Uh, John Dahl is nominated by the DGA under a TV category, not as a film um, or a theatrical film. And that's a a lot of the awards trajectory for this movie does center around Linda Fiorentino's performance. She ends up being BAFTA nominated as well, um, is a runner-up for National Society of Film Critics. Um, well, and part of it is that, like, that's sort of a notoriously weird year for Best Actress at the Oscars, right? Jessica Lang wins... This is the wins, Jessica Lang second Oscar year, yeah. Right. Wins a second Oscar for Blue Sky, a movie that had sat on the shelf for Orion for years. And Jodie Foster's in Nell, but everybody assumes that it's too soon for her to win her third Oscar, so that doesn't really materialize. Susan Sarandon's nominated for The Client, which... I think is a rad nomination, but I think had a lot of people scratching their heads because of the type of movie that that was. That was very much a sort of commercial. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I love her performance. She won BAFTA though. Susan Sarandon and the client won BAFTA. God, God bless. Sometimes BAFTA (laughs) used to be cool, man. Like BAFTA used to go for some really weird choices. What do you make of the, obviously the, the Academy's decision to shut it out, obviously it feels like it's very sort of like rigidly standing by the rules. And do you feel like if they were able to get a dispensation or whatever, researching it as you did and sort of getting into the the mood of things at the time, does it feel like something that was celebrated enough to become an Oscar winner had she been able to be nominated or at least an Oscar nominee? No. 
Maybe yeah. she would have been nominated, but I don't think she would have won. Um, the character is sort of too threatening, I think. Yeah. And also, like, if you look at these other movies that were um, extremely successful movies about women who were sort of sexually empowered that had come out over the past 10 years previous, let's say, nobody mm-hmm. won an Oscar for any of them. Yeah. Well, you even think of Sharon Stone uh, in Basic Instinct. Not even nominated. Not right. nominated, but also that Globe ceremony where she is nominated, mm-hmm. you have as many people clapping as laughing at it, which is, y- you watch that performance mm-hmm. now and it's absurd. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do question if she'd ultimately been able to snag a nomination for this movie just because of the way this type of genre is treated, especially in the 90s. Um, mm-hmm. Even though Basic Instinct is nominated for other things. Um, yeah, but, but just not... just craft, just like craft categories, you know, no acting, Correct. no writing, no directing. Um, yeah. And uh, the other thing is that, like, if the Academy had bent their rules for this movie, I'm sure they would be doing it because some people in the Academy were really for it. But, like, a lot of people in the Academy historically have been real sticklers for the rules and have been mm-hmm, real yeah. sticklers for this idea of, like, everybody else followed the rules. Everybody else put in their dues. Like, why is this thing special? Um, so yeah. I think, like, b- based on that, like, she might have not e- even gotten a nomination if they had declared her eligible. Yeah. One of the things I thought was interesting watching the Siskel and Ebert episode on this, the one movie that they compared it a lot to was Double Indemnity and Barbara Stanwyck's mm-hmm. performance in Double Indemnity, which was one that was nominated, but she did not win. Well, that was uh, so long lost. before. But, um, you know, there's many references in in The Last Seduction to um, uh, Double Indemnity. You know, there's, there's the insurance part of the plot. Um, there's yep. when she calls the cops to report Bill Nunn outside the house. She says, this is Mrs. Neff which is the name of the character from um, Double Indemnity. And, you know, her haircut is, like, basically Barbara Stanwyck's haircut from that movie. It kind of looks, because she's brunette, it looks a little bit more like Jean Tierney in Leave Her to Heaven. I love that. I love that, that you know, sort of communicating across the decades kind of a thing. Yeah, It's right there um, on the poster with the wave <laughs> of hair covering half of her face. Yeah, yeah. Um Anything else we want to get into, uh, we do a, an IMDb game uh, every week with our guests, but is there anything else you feel like we haven't uh, gotten to for this movie that you feel like is, is what are, what's in researching this movie specifically, what was the most interesting thing you found out about this that you hadn't maybe known before? I mean, I think just like the stuff we already talked about in terms of uh, her kind of taking a lead role in the sex scenes and... Um, and then just the ways in which like not like maybe she was to some extent like playing herself or doing some kind of method acting, but certainly yeah. the media treated her like she was and like she was yeah. really this sexually aggressive in real life. And like, yeah. you know, I don't know if they were taking her quotes out of context or if she was like really feeding them this material, but like every mm-hmm. profile written about her was about how like you know she like liked to have sex like a man how did john dahl talk about her in the press uh, surrounding the movie really complimentary um you yeah. know basically being like i'd cast her again well they they do reunite in a entirely forgettable thriller <laughs> i believe with ray liotta uh, oh unforgettable, yeah unforgettable a right. movie that i only remember as part of a trailer reel on vhs <laughs> That movie and Unlawful Entry are sort of uh, 
twinned in my mind for some reason. Sure. But yeah, I, I sure. think that was also Leota. Yeah. I was definitely flipping through an issue of Movie Line magazine today, or maybe it was Details. It was like some snarky magazine from the 90s where they're like, how dare they take a movie as forgettable as Unforgettable and call it Unforgettable. <laughs> Wait, Unforgettable with a scre- was written by Bill Getty, who was the guy who co-created The View with Barbara Walters. That is wow. a thing I never knew before. Holy crap. See, this <sighs> is why I do this podcast. <laughs> Get the women of The View talking about the motion picture unforgettable 100 percent. i love that um chris do you want to talk about the imtb game and we can uh and we can have karina play a little bit of round with us yeah uh every week we end our episodes with the imdb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that imdb says they are most known for if any of those titles are television voice only performances or non-acting credits we'll mention that up front after two wrong guesses we get the remaining titles release years as a clue if that's not enough it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Uh, we wanted to choose somebody uh, to challenge you with, Karina, from your Erotic 90s series. And we settled on a pair of... Uh, we wanted to get, maybe give you the choice between uh, guessing the IMDb known for for Sharon Stone or the known for for Madonna. Oh, gosh. Um I guess I'll do Sharon Stone. All right. So that's four movies, all of them, and no television, obviously, and no animated, which I think she's a voice in Ants. Am I, am I uh, mistaken? That is maybe? highly so it's, conceivable. Uh, it's <laughs> not, that is not one of her known for. So can you guess the four movies uh, on Sharon Stone's known for? Okay. Basic Instinct. Correct. Yes. Casino. Correct. Correct. Yes. Um, the Muse. Incorrect. Incorrect. Next wrong Even answer, we- you get the years. Okay. Um, the Quick and the Dead? Yes. Correct. Okay. Yep, three out of four. Um, I might, like, throw the next one just to get a year, but um, <laughs> let me think. Um, we do that, too. I was going to say, that is a proud <laughs> uh, proud strategy of this game, yes. Um, Gloria. Incorrect. So your year is 1993. Oh, um, uh, Sliver. It's Sliver. Sliver. <laughs> yes. A pretty representative known for. Sometimes the, uh, the IMDb algorithm goes completely cuckoo crazy. We just did one with Christina Ricci that does not have either Adam's Family movie on it, which wow. uh, we both found to be um, puzzling and frustrating as we were playing the game. I guess I should have guessed Total Recall, but I guess I would have been wrong. Uh, that's how I usually feel at the end of this. <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the Muse is one. We've done an episode on The Muse. The Muse is a fascinating yeah. uh, movie in the context of Sharon Stone, obviously, with the um, the the Golden Globes <laughs> controversy of it all. Yeah, the watches. Um, yeah, any movie with a payola controversy, we are uh, <laughs> we're all right about. What else, have, what else, Sharon Stone, did we done, Chris? Uh, the mighty, the mighty, the mighty <laughs> oh, we did. Wow, the yeah. well-remembered, the mighty. Yeah, we could do Gloria though. I feel like she got a Golden Globe nomination oh, for that God, one as did well. She? Yeah. <laughs> Highly conceivable. What a garbage remake of the worst Cassavetes movie. <laughs> I agree. Um, Karina, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, please tell Seriously. our listeners uh, if they are not already listening to you must remember this, which of course they should be. Uh, tell our listeners more about it and where they can find you. So You Must Remember This is a podcast 
mostly about 20th century Hollywood um, that I've been doing since 2014. So there are literally hundreds of episodes. Um, you can find it at youmustrememberthispodcast.com or on um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can follow news for the podcast um, on Twitter at RememberThisPod or Instagram or Facebook. Anywhere you go to find social things. Go get out there on the socials, people. Get out there on your podcast apps. Uh, it's you will if you're not a listener of this podcast, you will uh, not regret it. It's so much fun. I feel like I'm such a smarter uh, movie nerd for <laughs> listening to that podcast. That's one of when I used to do movie trivia at uh, uh, my beloved videology in Brooklyn. Um, I feel like I would call upon sometimes like a fact from an old, you must remember this episode mm-hmm. and it would help me with a question. So um, highest praise from me if a t- podcast can help me win trivia. Um, <laughs> but yeah, thank you uh, once again, Karina. We had such a great time and good luck with uh, the rest of Erotic 90s. Thank you so much. All right. We want to thank once again, Karina Longworth for talking with us. That was a fascinating discussion on the last seduction. Um, we... Can I also say, completely unsurprising, that Karina Longworth would boss the IMDb game. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um, I can't imagine you or I will do as well <laughs> with it, but we can. We can. Um, we can do our best, Chris. As Maybe we I won't be do. as nice to you as we were to our illustrious guests. All right, Chris, who do you have for me? I'll have you give to me and then I'll give to you. <laughs> you know, there was one movie that we didn't talk about. I think there's a there might be like two of the late stage movies of Linda Fiorentino's that we didn't mention by name. Yes. Uh, one of which, her very last credited movies, is called Where the Money Is, a crime comedy oh. starring none other than Mr. Paul Newman. Have we never done Paul Newman? I don't th- I didn't think so. I figured we hadn't, so I didn't even All look right. that up. We have done Paul Newman oh, no. recently. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was the uh we did Paul Newman on it looks like the away we go episode. Oh, okay. Um I did pull up a second one, but it is meaner. Um while you uh, shout out to where the money is, I guess. Um, shout out to where the money is. I do want to say when you mentioned Karina, or, uh, uh, Karina, Karina's on the brain. When you mentioned Linda Fiorentino's filmography, I, it made me think once again of the fact that uh, the views Bill Getty wrote Unforgettable. That is <laughs> fucking with me. It's really fucking with me. I had no idea. Ah, oh, the great enemy of Rosie O'Donnell wrote uh, wrote Unforgettable. I don't know. Listen, all all um upper level um producers all have some shitty thriller script sitting around honestly that's just their passion probably project. true i wonder if there's a split screenshot in unforgettable like there was of rosie and elizabeth hasselbeck having their <laughs> argument i wonder if that's the in most there. diabolical um split screen of all time truly uh, yes you know what isn't unforgettable? What is forgettable? The motion <laughs> what? picture, unforgettable. Yes. You know what's unforgettable to you now? <laughs> that the views Bill Gates Yes, exactly. I will quite literally never forget it. Yes. Uh, maybe we need to watch Unforgettable just to like Perhaps. keep saying that to ourselves the entire time yeah. of that uh, not interesting movie. Um, so for you, uh, pivoting yes. um, from 
uh, uh, Linda Fiorentino, this motion picture stars Peter Berg, Uh-oh. who, aside from directing a lot of uh, very red statey movies, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, also is known for starring on the television program Chicago Hope. Indeed, he was. Which uh, I, I, I'm sure, uh, Joe. Did you watch Chicago Hope? No, it was you had you were either a Chicago Hope person or an ER person, even though I don't think they were ever really in the same time slot very much, if at if at all. I um, was neither. You had to sort of make your choice. Also, I was just we were not a CBS household. You know what I mean? So like CBS shows, yeah. there were very few of them, even the ones that I now think are really good, like Murphy Brown and Designing Women. I didn't really watch at the time. So yeah, I was an ER person for sure. Sweet. Um, but from the cast of Chicago Hope for IMDb yeah. game for you, I chose Mr. Hector Elizondo. Oh boy, how many Gary Marshall movies will be on his IMDb known for? Okay. Great question. Hector Elizondo. Well, Pretty Woman I'm gonna put up there. Correct. I feel like he Correct. got some. Like, I also precursor. pulled it in for the Pretty Woman tie because uh a lot yeah. of the second episode of Iraq nineties is around Pretty Woman. Yeah. I feel like he got some precursor attention for that movie. Uh, he might corners. have won a golden. He was Globe nominated yeah. at least. Let yeah. me look this up. Would not have been a bad Oscar nomination. I imagine Pesci IMO. won everything that year for Goodfellas, but um, but yeah, I definitely think he was nominated for some yeah, stuff. Yeah, okay. pre SAG. So there's just a, a Golden Globe nomination for that performance. All right, Hector Elizondo. Now I'm just going to go into the the Gary Marshall. Obviously, Gary Marshall also directed Pretty Woman. Um, Valentine's Day. Incorrect. Damn it. Well, now I feel less optimistic about guessing the other days. Um, Hector Elizondo. No, I'm going to guess New Year's Eve, too. I have to. Also incorrect. Oh, my God. All right. So what are my years? (laughs) 1994, 1999, and 2004. 1994, 1999 and 2004. Huh. 1999, you should be able to get there. Really? Okay. Yes. Hector Elizondo in a 1999 movie. You correctly guessed Pretty Woman. Oh, Runaway Bride. Runaway Bride. Sure. Yes, of course. Again, Gary Marshall, Julia Roberts, Richard Gere. How could you have that band back together and not bring along Hector Elizondo? All right. 94 and 04. Laura Sanchez-Como. Truly, where is Laura Sanchez-Como? Okay, 94 and 04. Although in 99, I bet you she was doing Just Shoot Me. I bet you that was on the air at that point. Um, I will also say both of these are sequels. Okay. 94, are they both comedies? Yes. Okay. What's a comedy sequel in 1994? Wayne's World 2? No. No. What's being made? Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Um, comedy sequel, Father of the Bride Part 2. No. Damn. Looking up to see the 1994 movie, it does not look like he was in the predecessors of this sequel. However, the 2004 movie, he was in the original. Okay. Huh. That may not help you. Uh, you also weren't wrong to go on the Gary Marshall track. I will say oh, fuck. one of these is a Gary Marshall joint. Gary Marshall sequel to a Gary Marshall movie. Yes. 
Fuck. Is that is the original hero? I'm sure it is. Hold please. Is the oh is it the O four movie that's the sequel? Yes. Fuck. Okay. The Gary Marshall sequel. Okay, so it's the one he made probably. Yeah, before, he directed the original. Before Georgia Rule. Um This is a movie notable for mm, I brought this movie up to you recently in okay. regard in compare and maybe even on Mike in comparison to Celine Dion being in <laughs> Love Again. <laughs> Why is there a pop star in this? I wouldn't call this person a pop star, but there is a singer in this who perhaps half sang on screen and oh. it was meaningful slash sad. <laughs> oh no. Um Oh, for Gary Marshall sequel, singer, female singer. Yes. Who half sings. Older? The movie has two female headliners, both of whom headlined the original. Oh, boy. I am coming up blank. Was the original in the 90s? The original is 2001. Oh. It's not necessarily a sequel anyone asked for, but the original <laughs> was a really it, it it still has, you know, fans and such. Okay. Did you like it? Starring one of our faves. The Banger Sisters Part Two. No, that's not it. This is this is early era of one of our faves before they, you know, they had to break out of this mold. Early it's a era Disney movie. Oh, oh, it's the Princess Diaries too. Jesus Christ! Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, I was like, well, how can I make this? No, you like you. No, that was I was just missing all of the hints. Weirdly, I've never seen the second one. That was the one where he was yes in the first one. Yes, he's in both. Okay, those are not my movies. I know them. They, I appreciate they're not them. My movies either. But, I love you know, Anne. Love Julie Andrews. Love Julie love Andrews. Anne Hathaway. But they are like, not my movies. They're not, they're not my movies. That's fine. Right. I think I was just too old for Princess Diaries when yeah, it came out. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I like how I'm true. just too old for Pokemon. Yes, same. By like weeks. Yeah. Um, okay, so the 1994 movie, it's not a Gary Marshall joint. It is a John Landis joint. <laughs> oh, is it an SNL movie? No. Okay. Its star, though... Is an SNL person. Yes. Mike Myers. No. Dana Carvey. No. Phil Hartman. Bigger. Oh. This person got bigger after SNL. Molly Shannon. No. No. Bigger after SNL. Were they like one of those like one season SNL people who then like had a big career? I don't know if he was one season. But. But not like. Nobody like, talks about him as an SNL person because he's a huge star. Hmm. That rules out Eddie Murphy. Does it? Oh, is it Eddie Murphy? Eddie Murphy was a pretty big star on SNL. I feel like that was like yeah, a Yeah, but big deal. nobody today yes. talks sure. about him sure, being sure, on sure, SNL. Sure, sure. Okay. Eddie Murphy, 1994. Um, this is too early for Comedy an Eddie Professor 2. Comedy sequel. Okay. Nutty Professor was later. What's the franchise that made Eddie Murphy huge? 
aside from oh, the stand-up. Was it a Beverly Hills Cop? Beverly Hills Cop <laughs> 3? Beverly Hills Cop 3. Wow, that came later than I thought it did. Wow, okay. That's a weird one to be on Hector Elizondo's known for. Yeah, three Gary Marshalls and Beverly Hills Cop And Beverly Cop Hills three. Cop 3. Wow. Yeah, that's a weird one. Okay, that's tough. That's a tough one. Yours is much Don't easier. Don't you hate how they're still trying they're trying to get somebody to do to redo the Beverly Hills Cop franchise and yes. it's like are we really attached to that franchise or do we just love Eddie Murphy? We I just mean, love Eddie Murphy. This is like, the thing. No one cares about those movies anymore. Right. Um I know you hate the word the term legacy sequel, but uh yes, Boo. it's uh certainly yeah, like there's no there's no attachment to Beverly Hills Cop, but they're so tied to anything with something in the title that will trigger a memory. That All right. All right. Uh for you I went into the John Dahl filmography, and John Dahl directed, among several other movies, directed the movie Rounders, one of the stars yes. of which is John Malkovich. We have never done John Malkovich, so Uh-oh. I know, which is kind of surprising. I mean, the Jewel Thief movie. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, uh, John Malkovich, uh, In the Line of Fire. Correct. Oscar-nominated. I don't think Places in the Heart is there. Um, being John Malkovich. Correct. Um, in which he's credited on here, at least, as John Horatio Malkovich, which I think is very funny. <laughs> Spectacular. Yeah. Um, Dangerous Liaisons. Dangerous Liaisons, three for three. Are you going to go okay. four for four? I, I have to imagine something more recent is in that fourth slot, and it might be burn after reading it's not going to be secretariat even though he got you know good notices for that or some weird shit um i'm i'm gonna say burn after reading incorrect okay. sorry no That's perfect fine. score no burn um, after i'll give you that it's also not secretariat even though that would okay. be very funny <laughs> what what are you saying <laughs> um uh okay um do I still want to go down this road of thinking that it's something recent? I don't know. What if it's something really wild, like Empire of the Sun? <laughs> um, good movie. Um, okay. I'm just going to say Places in the Heart and get the year. It's not Places in the Heart. So your year right. is 2010. Okay, so it is something recent. It would be... Ah. Recent as in 13 years ago, but yes. <laughs> well, more recent than yes, the rest. Yes, yes, what yes, 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 yes. Um, so it's after Burn After Reading. I, I assume that's after Secretariat. What is time? Secretariat has always been with us. Yes, we've always had Secretariat. Um, Just running around that track forever. <laughs> Diane Lane looking wistfully into yes. the middle distance. Yes. Um, uh, okay, 2010. What was it? Is this one of those like a bunch of old guys getting together and having a good time movies? Maybe. Is it like what's that one? Going in style? It's not going in style. Is he in is that? It, is it? He's not in Las Vegas. I don't believe he is. <sighs> what is this? Okay. Judging by your silence, I'm guessing this is a bunch of old guys in a movie movie. Uh, it's, yes, 
Yes, it's not exactly the genre, but like it's 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 very close to that genre. They're not okay. like going for like one of their you know one of them is dying and they're going to their like last uh, you know bachelor party or whatever. Maybe I'll watch Las Vegas today. Yeah. Um, okay, so it's a comedy. Yes, it's a comedy. Okay, is it? Did this movie make money? Yeah. Okay. Um, this movie shares a title with an album from the last 10 years. Renaissance. No. <laughs> it's not called Renaissance. Um, I imagine it's either Search a Grammy-winning album of the year or it was nominated, I think. Oh. I don't know the Grammys. I could be wrong, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to guess that. Rumors. Um, <laughs> no. Okay, it's the same as a possibly album of the year winning album. This artist has definitely won album of the year. I'm not sure if it was oh, for okay. this album or not. Is it like a Springsteen title? Nope. It is not uh, John Malkovich in Born in the USA. <laughs> um, it's not Bohemian Rhapsody. No. Um, um, Give me the artist. What's the art? What artist are we talking about? I mean, if I give you the artist, you're going to get it right away. Okay, never mind. Very the popular. Arti- artist. Does the artist is the artist central to the plot of the movie? Oh no! Like it, it's just coincidental that the movie and the and the album oh, have the same okay. title. So it might be something. It's not like a, it's not like connected. It's not like John Malkovich and the visual album of Seven <laughs> which would be John amazing. Malkovich in the visual album for the Eagles. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. Although, this artist has appeared in a few movies, one of which was directed by Gary Marshall. Taylor Swift. Yes. Fearless. No. (laughs) Speak now. No. Red. Yes. Oh, my God. (laughs) Jesus. I thought you were going to go 4 for 4 on that one. That was a lot more fun of an IMDb game than I anticipated that was going to be. Jesus. I forgot that he was in Red, mostly because I tried to forget those movies. It's what? It's him, it's Bruce Willis, it's Morgan Freeman and Helen Mirren, right? Those are your four? Yes. Old friends getting together for one last... Yes. Mary Louise Parker, who was younger than all of them, but yes. Um... Yeah, Red. Did that win album of the year? Did it? Did Red win album of the year? Am I wrong? It did not. It did not. It was nominated. Her album of the year wins are Fearless, Folklore, and I think 1989. I was going to say 1989, I feel like, won album of the year. Okay. What's on Red? I'm not a Swifty, but I like Taylor Swift. No. Um, uh, The Last Seduction. Yes. Joe, great episode. Great episode. Incredible guests. Yes. And uh, we thank her once again, even though she's uh, by this point off doing uh, doing her own podcast thing. This is days yes. later. We are recording this finale. Of, if uh, our listeners don't listen to you, must remember this. I don't understand why you don't. Yeah, erotic nineties uh, is going to be a banger of a no pun intended banger of a season for that show. Uh, the eighties version was already so fantastic and so good, but there's so many. Fun stories, if you are in any way a 90s person, I imagine it's going to be hugely interesting for you. So, yeah, go listen. Come back and listen to us also. We also 
are uh, have banger episodes coming up, and <laughs> we've got our main mini series coming up soon. So. A month away, we are a little behind the eight ball on it. <laughs> I would say, but we are, we've been busy. We've, we've been busy people. We're going to be good. Yeah, yeah, we got it. We got it. We got but it. Uh, it's going to be exciting. Yes. Uh, maybe a small diversion from the form, Perhaps. or a large one. Who's Who knows? To say? All right. Yeah, that's our episode, everybody. If you would like more of This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at head underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so quit toying with that dummy you found at the bar and write us a nice review, won't you? That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz. 